Greetings, everyone. This is the Sound Health Radio Show, where we talk about the crossroads of the environment and our health and longevity. With Richard Talk to Me Guy, and Sherry Edwards is off working on the Sound Health Portal. I'd suggest going to the soundhealthportal.com, scrolling down just a bit, and clicking on the Watch How button. It's a really short video, but it shows you how you'll submit, you'll be able to record and submit your first recording. Then go back to the soundhealthportal.com, scroll down to the current campaigns. Campaigns are those that are free software packages, I guess I'll call it, that you can have your voice or vocal print run through. And those, some of those campaigns currently are such as Corona Conflicts, BioDiet, or PTSD TBI. Choose one of, one of the campaigns that interests you, something that you'd like to check out or look at. Click on that campaign and click the free voice analysis, and the system will walk you through submitting your recording, and you'll receive an email back after you submit it within usually one to two hours. I'd suggest sitting down with a cup of tea and reviewing it. If you have a practitioner, an acupuncturist, a DC, an osteopath, naturopathic doctor, something along those lines, you might take that report with you to your next visit and say, look, this is interesting. Could we work on this a little bit? Is there something out of alignment? Or look, we've been working on that and look how vital it is. It's really great information, now accessible easily online at soundhealthportal.com. To hear and share replays of this show about 30 to 40 minutes after you hear the outro music, go to talktomeguy.com, scroll down that page, and you'll see this show at the top of the episodes page. There are also archives of hundreds of hours of shows available there as well. There's a microphone icon at the bottom right corner of all pages. If you'd like to leave me a message, voice message with a question for today's guest and or a guest idea for a show, just click that and leave me a message directed from your tablet, your phone, your computer, wherever you are. And I will be notified and I will get back to you. With that, Eli Coverley is a world traveler and seeker of truth through adventure. At 17, he left his small Pacific Northwest town to fulfill his dream of becoming an Army paratrooper. At 20, he was honorably discharged and began his search for a new dream. Eli's writing has taken him worldwide to explore a few of the bigger questions of our human existence. And his prophetic worldview combines military service, counterculture, and anthropology, and archaeology of the world's religious symbols. He has studied the migration of the indigenous and ingested their medicine, absorbed their art, and embodied their cosmovision. In War in the Hearts of Men, Eli's new book, he details his lifelong quest to understand the Maya culture and its effect on the present. The author shares his history of the artistry of the stone-carved symbols on the heels of his extensive travels to both Central and South America. In this intimate and inspirational text, Corbley contrasts contemporary life with the past, spiritual rituals that formed the framework of the ancient Mayan culture. War in the Hearts of Men, which identifies and interprets the historical ideologies that suppressed the feminine, displayed the cultural imbalances caused by rampant colonialism and resulted in the subjugation of native populations over many centuries, furthers the journey toward enlightenment sought by those wise enough to learn from the past. 
Eli Coverley joins us to talk about his quest deep into the heart of man's soul and symbolism. Welcome, Eli. Thanks for having me, Richard. Glad to be here. All right, everybody, please strap yourself in. This could be an adventure. <laughs> it's a it's a multi-dimensional kind of conversation based on Mayans, which is really an interesting approach. I wanna I wanna start at a slightly skew location by asking about your PTSD. I wanna include I wanna include in this question the stunning to me, experience of you being indoctrinated into the military culture of violence by your fellow soldiers. Was this, was your PTSD something that moved you toward wanting to do ayahuasca to clear that? And was that, was that part of the opening of your interest in the Mayan culture or were you already Mayan bound, so to speak? I was already uh, Mayan bound. I, you know, I I didn't know I had PTSD when I tried the ayahuasca, and I yeah. um, I also when I wrote this book, I didn't know I had PTSD. It, um, as I was finishing up the final uh, editing, is when I was um, seeing a therapist about it, it be, because it was the writing and the expression of of what I wanted to learn that sort of illuminated. Um, my own uh, issues that I had from result of being in the military. And in your, in the early on in the book, you talk about this, what I'll call indoctrination of the military and you, you went with it. I'll, I'll just put it that way. You went with it, meaning you joined the club of no man up, I think would be the phrase probably. And you did. And were you always a, kind of a turn the cheek guy or was it really you you were being indoctrinated into this thing that you had dreamed about wanting to be a paratrooper since you were a kid was it was it that that's a bigger question and i can't quite formulate it correctly but that seems like a lot of trauma just that the fact that they what i'll call abused you um was that because you were so wanting you you didn't leave you stayed you put up with it and you continue to to go on to become a paratrooper yeah um well as you said you know in in the writing i i talked about how i was beat up by um firstly my whole platoon and and um you know a lot of people have seen that movie a few good men um 90s movie it was, like, it was like that, except for I was um, I was actually a really good soldier and, and better at most things than most everyone in the platoon. The problem was is my confidence level was too much for them to handle, and mm. I was uh, I was I was cocky and and you know so I, I I've always been into uh, you know physical things or especially when I was younger. You know, I'm 44 now, but then I was a teenager. Um, I could do more push-ups. I could, I could run faster. I could shoot straighter. All those kind of things. And I was just have always been confident. I grew up rurally, so, um, I mean, I, I needed something to sort of have an outlet. And I think the military helped, um, especially what I was doing with the paratroopers uh, mentality. But the reason why, I manned up, as you said, 
and I di- I didn't turn anyone in. Um, and I was they they found out about the abuse and it, you know, and I just said nothing happened. The reason why is because honestly, Hollywood. If you watch yeah. the movie Platoon, yeah, and the guy realizes, oh, you know, I made this, uh, you know, or I, I'm going to have to be next to these guys for a long time. What, you know, and if I thought, well, if, if I'm going to have to go to war with these guys, the last thing I want to do is get shot in a foreign country because they want to get rid of me <laughs> because yeah. of what, you know, because I spoke up against the violence and the, and the abuse, you know, because I, what I knew is that once, someone gets abused or someone gets beat up and everyone else does the same thing to other people. And so I just thought, well, I better fall in line to make the best of this enlistment. And also I don't like to quit and I don't like to give up. And it was, and especially then, you know, I didn't like those things, giving up or quitting. So I, I just decided, well, this is, I'm going to make the best of it. And um, a lot of it, when you come from a small town, you join the military, you don't want to come back and, and, the news that this guy, you know, he didn't finish what he started or any of this because I didn't want to be a logger or a farmer. And that was the only thing that people were doing in the small town I grew up in. Yeah. And what was the, when do you think you, you started having this desire to be a paratrooper? Cause you say that you, you, you left the Pacific Northwest when you were pretty young to then go and roll. What do you? What was the draw to the specifics of the Army paratrooper? You like jumping out of things? Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, my dad was a, you know, he was a hunter and he was a, a fisherman kind of guy. He was even a blacksmith for a while. All those mm-hmm. things that could have been like seventeen, eighteen hundred kind of, kind of uh, vocation. So I, I ended up. Just sort of, you know, I went bear hunting the first time when I was, I think I was 11 with, when I went with him. Mm. And mm. so I just, you know, all those kind of things. I, I love camping and I love to shoot guns and I saw a lot of movies. I love movies growing up. And um, it glorifies war, you know, and I had G.I. Joes and that's a typical American kid except for, um, you know, uh, not. I was a little on the edge of my, my, let's say physical capacity or my interest in, in surviving. I I really enjoyed being out in nature and, um, you know, I was a captain of all the sports that I did. And so it just kind of made sense to me. And the Mm -hmm. catalyst, like I've talked about in the past is Newsweek. I saw, I was walking through the library on the way to lunch one day and I saw this thing that had the, uh, some, uh, special forces soldier in Somalia and he was being drugged through the street. It was just his upper torso. He was dead. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, I got to make something of myself. I got to do something. I got to help, you know, defend America kind of thing. I, I didn't know any better. I was just ignorant. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's amazing. I, I, I went to college with a bunch of Vietnam vets. I'm older than much older than you. And mm-hmm. I heard their stories and it really blew my mind. Uh, I mean, I knew I'm a very, I'm pro soldier, anti-war. That's my position. Mm -hmm. I'm sort of an old school pippy. Not really, but back then I was, and I was a photojournalist and it was amazing to me to have these guys come back who were 
on the outside they look probably like yourself a regular kind of guy but once they let's they might smoke some pot they might have too many beers because what i realized now is that they were all suffering from ptsd and were and it was untreated and it wasn't really talked about way back then in the 80s or early 70s mid 70s mm-hmm. and it was just stunning to me the kinds of things when they would open up or, you know, you'd find a big brutish guy in the corner kind of not sobbing, but like, you know, occasionally he'd have a story or he'd take too, too big a hit or something would happen. And you'd find them sort of tearing up in the corner, completely out of character. And it was just amazing to me the stuff that they went through, A, and B, that they held it in, that they held that in their bodies was just mind-blowing to me. Which which leads me actually to ask you about when does yoga come into your life and do you think that the yoga really helped your your body continue was was yoga post ayahuasca or was yoga an ongoing thing and it just helped you move it out of your body I guess I'll call that. Um, I grew up next to a snowboarding mountain Mount Baker in Washington, and okay. one time, I guess the first yoga class I ever did. Now that I look back on it, was uh, yoga for snowboarders. It just said I I saw a wow. sign, and I thought, oh, this will be good because I'd like to stretch more. I, I knew yoga was something about stretching. That was it. Um, but then I didn't take a class for years, and I ended up in a studio and. In Iowa, my friend was learning to teach yoga, a childhood friend. And and so I really, I had nothing better to do. I was helping him move out of his apartment, and he was getting his Ph.D., and he didn't have time. So I just was there for a month, and every morning we after we'd get extremely intoxicated the night before, we'd go to yoga with a quad shot of, uh, you know, mocha. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Drive to yoga. Yeah, and so we just <laughs> were doing physical practices, and that was what I needed to sort of get to the closer to the center. And did the yoga open, was part of your yogic practice uh, meditation or were you mostly doing the physical part? Um, I found a studio in Iowa city called, it was downward dog yoga and it was hot yoga and it was people doing handstands almost in between every pose. And Mm -hmm. that was their whole thing. And so I liked it because it was a physical thing. And and um, I didn't get into the meditation or the um, spiritual side of things and I, until I started studying philosophy because I I don't have interest in anything or never have and unless I know the purpose why why are we doing this what is why are we here for this and why did other people do this cool so I, really, I like that I like that as a reason it just ha- it just evolved yeah. for you yeah yeah. It definitely evolved, and I don't. I like. It's like I also play guitar. My dad builds guitars, and um, if I'm going to play guitar, I'd like a Telecaster where it has sort of an original tone, pretty organic and stripped down. So I, I like to know the root of of what it is that I'm doing or why we're here. And so that yoga helped in, you know, a lot of different ways to to uncover things. I think it's really interesting that in your journey, we'll get to the Mayan culture. It's, it's, I think, part of this. I think the interesting part for me of hearing this is that your journey was you had already had the form of the yoga, whether you were you know, possibly hammering the night before and you had to have a quad to get to, to yoga to do it, but you already had the physical form in. 
And that for me has always been the harder part is the yoga versus the meditation. And, and when does the meditation part enter for you? Um, I was, what was it, 2011, 12 or something. I, I was, uh, I went to this Buddhist uh, Gom Day meditation retreat center and it was a weekend and, and at the end they said, does anyone have any questions? And I had, I had heard in a yoga class that, you know, quieting the mind is, is kind of the purpose of yoga, someone said. And so I just stood up in the, at the end when they asked the question, do you have any questions about meditation? I said, you know, um, what's the best way to quiet the mind? And then um, this woman in the crowd stands up and says, my name is Alma, which I knew in Spanish meant soul. And she said, if you want to quiet the mind, you have to study, or I highly recommend studying with B. Allen Wallace and go wherever he is and take his, um, his retreat. And so I, I ended up doing that. I went to Singapore. Um, I bought a ticket the next day. And I spent weeks there with him. And so it was, it was I, I kind of, this was every teacher that I ever was into, I, I kind of learned from the last one. So I, I go and then I kind of follow synchronicity. Mm-hmm. And I ended mm-hmm. up going, traveling in Fallon Wallace, who's, he sat next to the Dalai Lama, a really amazing man. He's got to be 85 by now almost. Wow. Those meditators live a long time. <laughs> That's just a bumper sticker <laughs> over there. Those meditation people really live a long time. And when, well, actually, I'll back this up. Why is the Maya cosmology really the backdrop of your big story? Um, well, I would say that one, I, the physical aspect of me needed an adventure. Um, my adventurous spirit, you know, I missed like the thing I loved about the army is, is the jungle. We went, I mm-hmm. spent some time in the jungle and I, I spent time trekking, you know, really long road marches, they call it, and and the adventure and the thrill-seeking. So that was good for me to, you know, once I went to my first pyramid um, on my honeymoon when I was in my 20s, um, I I just, I thought, well, this is this is really cool. And then also, you know, I, I can get that sort of hit on on my experience, I guess. And then mm-hmm. also, um, I realized, well, well, I was studying Sanskrit and I realized that Maya means, um, the illusion. And I thought, well, what, what illusions do we have in society? And, and isn't this neat to know about, uh, there's all these Kings sort of, um, getting, getting played, um, by vassal Lords from other countries, like, and what other Kings and, and society are ultimately getting played by um, leaders with great uh, resources. So that's, I mean, that's how I got into it. But also I want to know like, oh, the world's coming to an end. And I'm, I'm, and my name's Elijah and my parents were biblical people. So I knew that it means the prophet. So I thought about prophecies and what prophecies are existing today. And so, you know, the the end of the world 2012 thing, and that's when I really dove deep, um, and I went to those places to study the, the calendar. Mm-hmm. And when you, when you 
found this, I guess it would be, I will say it this way. The first time you saw stone carvings or hieroglyphics in Central and South America, who or what did you see in those carvings that really, I think that was, again, another sort of like opening. It's at least how I sense from the book that that was a real, wow. It's, did you know what you were looking at in terms of could you read the carvings or the symbolism, or was it really the experience of seeing them and the power of what they were? Um, well, I was impressed with their artistry um, and how good of artists they were with limestone and how, mm-hmm. you know, because I've seen people like, you know, make sidewalks, but <laughs> not sidewalks yeah. with animal yeah. heads or yeah, yeah. or uh, all these other things. So. I was impressed with the artistry, but also I was, you know, I, I was into Kundalini yoga, which Kundalini is the energy of the serpent. And so I started seeing snakes and I, and I also, I started to learn the, the glyphs, what they meant. And I was, I was studying with the um, day keeper a little bit and I, and they, they keep track of the, of the time um, through the, in, in the cosmos and it's sort of relation to animals um, for embodiment. So, I, I mean, I just, I kind of, it was a gradual process. It was, it was gravity sort of osmosis being there enough and, and then ultimately reading books. I, I read a lot of books. A lot of history. <laughs> There's a lot of yeah. writing on this. And could you say, say a little more about uh, Kundalini yoga? I know what you mean, but what is that? There are styles or kinds of yoga and what is the, what are the qualities of Kundalini yoga? Yeah, so there's a there's a correlation or in uh, difference that people don't necessarily always understand. And one is Yogi Bhajan who came to New Mexico and in, in uh, you know in the in the 1900s he ended up there um, with a retreat from India. He he came over and he wanted to start this brand of yoga. Kundalini yoga is based on kriyas, which kriya in Sanskrit means things that are done over and over again, like a habit or repetition. So kundalini yoga isn't necessarily kundalini, but it might help with kundalini, (laughs) which is the energy of the serpent. And that's um, based on my studies and what I've read is is that, you know, the coiled serpent at the baseline and, and once these sort of energies get unlocked, that's when the electricity rises up through the spine and um and that's the serpent so we're we're looking at at an ancient understanding of of the nervous system through through um symbolism and through animism and say a bit more about animism animism please sure animism is like the embodiment of of animals and sort of like um their characteristics and and many indigenous people around the world will use animals and these characteristics and these embodiments and also through with psychedelic ritual or, or ceremony um, to transform the way they view the world or ultimately how they act in the world. Mm-hmm. I know from, uh, I did a lot of backpacking as a kid, as a kid with a family that would go, we'd go off into the Vantana wilderness for Mm-hmm. two to six weeks. And re- this is not glamping. This is just backpacks, hiking. And mm-hmm. there'd be times when, well, a couple of things would happen. One, I, we'd be hiking along on a hot day and if you, and on trails and there were 
only one occasion did I ever step on a rattlesnake, and it was it was equally as shocking to both of us. Glee, I say he because I don't know why, but he big snake, and he looked at me like, oh my god, and I looked at him with bad words, and we both jumped quite far, and. Mm-hmm. So then further, further along as we, I became more aware of snakes, I would see them do that exact thing, that frightening thing that people see in the movies where they coil up and they rattle their tail. And so I have a very strong image of that as a kundalini thing because of that, because you see this, inte- this stunning intensity. They are hyper-focused. They really are trying to warn you. They're not interested in biting you. It's not like, I'm going to bite you because I can't. It's not that. It's a defense mechanism. And they really draw all of their chi into that moment. So they're completely hyper-focused on you and letting you know, hey, I will hurt you. Go away. Yes, they'll go out and kill a mouse, but they don't go through a lot of dance around that. They just come up and they kill the mouse and eat it. But it, it, it's an amazing energy once you discover it. I've, I've done some body work with people. And I've worked on people who do a lot of yoga. And it's amazing when you come across somebody who really can run that energy through their body, kind of like from their, you know, tailbone from the bottom of their sacrum up through their body. It's, you know, kind of that Bruce Lee kind of martial art thing where they, where you become fully centered. And then that there's that explosion of energy that comes out. So I think Kundalini is, is an amazing force. It, do you know, is it ever used? Is it talked about in martial arts? Do you do any martial arts? You seem like you might have dabbled in martial arts. I don't do martial arts. No, I, okay. I always wish I, I would have, um, but I have a lot of injuries, so I'm, I'm weary against things like that. But um, yeah. they talk about chi, like you said, chi, but <clears throat> chi and prana, you know, prana, uh, life force energy, it's, it's the same thing. They were talking about the same thing, and ultimately Chinese medicine is older than uh, the Ayurvedic stuff or mm-hmm. closely in time yeah. period. So it's it's just, it's the same thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And what are, since you mentioned that, I, what are the parallels between the Maya cosmovision and the ancient Vedic traditions? I would never put those two together, but that's a thought that I come from reading your book of like, they're related to, or they have parallels. What are they? And wow. Yeah. Um, well, there's a lot. I mean, like I said, the serpent energy, they use this snake, like, so, like Shiva was wearing a snake around his neck, and, you know, the kundalini yoga, the snake, the serpent. But also the Maya people um, talk about the snake um, in close relation to um, uh, a creator deity coming from the east who is Kuku Khan, um, and they they even in Chichen Itza, the world famous uh El Castillo, they have that this this pyramid where it's like uh you have on the equinox when the sun hits this pyramid you have a perfect balance of shadow and light and um you can actually see a shadow of a serpent running down the stairs. Mm-hmm. So um yeah, and then um a lot of the rulers use um, the serpent is a symbol of power and authority. Um, and even the, the staff that they used, and you'll see these relief carvings or stellas where they're monuments that are stone carvings about, you know, f- three meters high or so. And they have someone holding a staff, and the staff is really just 
of representation of, of, of Kundalini in the serpent. Um, that's just one thing. If you go to Palenque, which is my favorite site that I've been to, um, and I've, I'm going there next month, I've been there now close to 10 times, um, is you'll see um, them using mudras in the, in the stellas and the carvings. And um, I believe I was the first one who ever made the correlation on what the mudra actually is um, that they're doing, and that is um, it's the the middle finger and the thumb touching together, which is if you go and you study the Buddha and you look at those carvings, you'll see um, you'll see that they're doing the Shunyang uh, mudra, which is uh, represents fire and time, and so the Maya people. Um, worshipped fire and time and they believe um, with that mudra is a connection to where the the soul was born and it's located in the uh, heavens in, in Orion's belt which is ultimately mm-hmm. represented um, by these three pyramids in Palenque and also Giza um, plateau in Egypt those three pyramids mm-hmm. and when you say Mayans worship fire and time, how do they do they utilize that? How do they? I kind of see how you could put them together, but I, it may be in my weird quantum thinking. How would they utilize? Uh, why, well, actually, let me do this. How would they worship, and why do you feel that that is what they worship? Fire and time. Well, I don't feel it. I know it. <laughs> okay. Okay. All right. Because, um, and here's why, is that um, the daykeeper, who is who is the the shaman or the the representative in the group of um, sort of the spiritual connection, those they're doing a fire ceremony, the biggest, most uh, widely central themed ceremony is a fire ceremony, and when they're doing that, they're they're building a mandala. And they're, it's represented by their cosmovision, which is represented in time with um, all of the animism with those animals. So what they're ultimately doing is is keeping track of time, um, alluding to a creation uh, point in in the cosmos. And they're doing it through their numeral system, which is represented um with bars and dots and that they only have zero to 20. Zero is sort of like that central theme of fire and 20 is a, it, all the numbers are like a dot is one. And then if you have a, a um, bar, that's five and you add them all together and you keep on, you can add them infinitely with symbols. And these symbols are um, also represent um, measurements of days. So like the Baktun is 144,000 days, and that's represented um, by a specific glyph. Mm-hmm. Now, if you take those, then you you can um, they calculate time um, back and forward, forward and reverse, millions of years. Mm-hmm. And and that 144,000 is represented um, and as a, a complete masculine feminine numerical proportion um, of 72,000, which is represented in the Vedic tradition. So it's, it all kind of circles around. And on their calendar that you've seen, are we gone yet? 
<laughs> I mean, are we headed? I, I what I'm really act, act, asking facetiously is the Mayans and those cultures have a view of the world picture. They they seem to have a much better grip on what I would call a better grip on the world view of being with nature, being in relationship with the earth, having a relationship with the earth so that they appreciated and understood the earth. And in that, in those teachings and what you've seen in your trips to like say Palenque, have they, is there a timeline where we're gone or do they see it? Do they have a unit? Do they have an infinite view on things or do they have a oh and then this will happen then kind of view does that make sense yeah it makes good sense i mean everyone who believes in a creator kind of believes in this sort of Mm -hmm. you know um and so you have a, a thing where people um or where they're talking about these different worlds and if you go and you read the popu vu which is their creation story which predates christianity you'll look back um into a story that talks about um, five worlds and these worlds were being created by the creator and then they were destroyed with cataclysms that came and um, they had chances and they blew them basically they you know um, or they weren't evolved correctly and so they got wiped out so now we're at the fifth world and they say that's what the 2012 calendar was about, the end of the world thing. It was it was the end of a specific world and the beginning of a new one. And it's represented in a new way, <clears throat> um, supporting the feminine. We're moving into a, a feminine uh, period of time, which is 5,125 years. And so that means that we're just doing um, this new cycle that's moving from the center in, into a, a more feminine uh, area, the, sort of the end of masculine dominance into feminine uh, openness, mm-hmm. and then, but it's just it's just changing. And but they say, like I said, the you know the fear part is, well, um, this should be a motivation for change. The way we've we've lived out of balance for so long and, and um, trashed the environment and and destroyed. Um, the feminine and those sort of things. And do they have a view of the planet as being more feminine or is it, do they, well, actually let me ask this. Do they have a view of the planet itself, the earth being a gender for lack of a better term, or is it, or is it more of the timeline? We've moved from being a masculine timeline and now we're moving into a feminine timeline timeline. Yes and yes. Um, so the, you'll hear them say something like heart of the earth, heart of the sky. And so mm-hmm. in the Cosmo vision, um, the, the earth is the mother and, and the sky is the father. Um, mm. But also they believe in, in the cyclical nature of time um, in a masculine, feminine way. So it's not correlated um, physically. It's just sort of separated um, energetically, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And they're always relating to each other. I'm talking in the, the cosmovision view. The sky is father, earth is mother. They're always in relationship to you 
to each other versus kind of what we have on the planet, which is we seem to be intermittently battling each other for reasons I don't know. But it, but in their cosmovision, the sky is father, earth is mother. They're actually in relate. They're relating to each other and interacting and intertwining with each other. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. Yeah, they're sort of expressing in polarities, but also understanding um, the the sort of creation point, and that's that's what I go back to is the Bindu in the in the Sri Yantra or the Vedic tradition, the center point where you have creation, and they literally talk about it as the sperm and the egg, mm-hmm. and so that that's what that is 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 there's out of balance times and there's times of expression for war and there's times of expressions for peace and, and separation and connection. So it's not necessarily just that we should all be happy all the time. In fact, whenever Venus came around, they were more likely to um, have war. Mm-hmm. Um, when we had these great transits of Venus and they, they recognized that, um, so it's it's a constant relation and a constant creation and ultimately destruction, just like like the Vedic tradition. Um, so yeah, I mean it's it's just uh, they're then they're doing ceremony about about that connection of of the masculine and feminine. Mm-hmm. And in the Mayan culture, have are women an equal? always or is there subjugation has there been have there been times of subjugation of women in mayan this cosmovision or have women always been equal warriors i guess i'll try that word it depends on the time period okay <laughs> so all right it's, it's interesting because you'll see this is what i noticed and i loved it because I started seeing certain locations where there are women who are rulers mm-hmm. and you know and carved on these Stella's right and you'd see like you know the lady this or lady that and you know that's what the archaeologists call it but mm-hmm. but they were they were just as powerful um, as men in in many instances um, at certain time periods and in certain areas and so um, of course when you go back further when you're rooted in the earth and they're paying attention to the cycles more and they're less about their technology or their building or their their religion as a as a sort of like a prescribed uh culture um when they're closely related to the earth they're paying more reverence to the feminine and respecting women more um it just gets out of hand once they have too much agriculture too much uh war too much building of of monuments and those sort of things so when, you say, when you say out of out of balance, what does that look like? I mean, I yeah. Well, what does that what look like? Well, it's like our culture. Like you know, we may have had good intentions. Um, you know, be sort of looking for freedom and from religious persecution and sailing across the seas, and then and then you know we're wanting our, our own children to have a successful life, and then we're then we're you know, chopping down trees and fishing all the salmon and destroying the indigenous people and those sort of things, you know. And the Maya people did that too eventually, but a lot of it was around having some influence from another land. Um, and that's what we've always 
cultures have always done is is uh, had some dominant sort of uh, colonialist viewpoint driving our force to wipe out uh, populations and and uh, and their resources. In in some ways, it seems like when we have wars or some battle over something that we often act kind of like a virus in the, in my <laughs> mind in that we come in and we go it's I'm taking over here because I know better than you do and that that seems to me kind of how we treat the planet that we keep coming in and damaging the planet but we don't care because it's something we want from it petroleum let's talk about petroleum that's a fun one um, you know we just yeah. keep sucking petroleum out of the earth with no idea of the long term effect in in mine culture, I know they weren't mining petroleum or drilling for petroleum, but do they have events that occurred when they were in an out-of-balance cycle, I'll call it, where they did too much of something and then they realized there was a repercussion, but because they've been documenting their history for so many thousands of years, they kind of go, oh, hey, we did that before and it didn't work. We should pay attention to this. Or do they have moments of out-of-balance in relationship to nature or themselves? Yeah, I think I think a good example is like everyone knows through science now that the trees are um, are helping us breathe oxygen better. And so um, in order to build these monuments and these structures, these pyramids and these civilizations and to keep them further to grow more corn, you're going to need to cut down trees. Well, in order to do these limestone buildings too, you're, you're, burning these trees to get the temperature hot enough to melt the the um the stone and all this kind of stuff so essentially they're destroying the the um water content they're destroying the oxygen content and the shade so they're speeding up they're speeding up the uh heat conditions um they're lessening the water conditions for their corn and they're also um making it harder to breathe because you know, smoke in the air, carbon monoxide, and yeah, and, yeah. You know, less trees because they're like the it's like the lungs of the earth, these jungles, and there's yeah. people breathing air in North America from Central America uh, trees. It's it's that big of a of a biosphere. So naturally, we're bioorganisms and we're parasites, but we have a consciousness, um, and so we become conscious of what happens, and then. The Maya people, when they became conscious, they started to go deeper and deeper into the caves for sacrifice um, because they put their trust in these 1%, right? And they they said, oh, well, we're going to fix it with these sacrifices or these ceremonies in the caves. And one of the places I've been to in Central America, you'll find children's uh, bones everywhere and, and bastion skulls and all this sort of thing. And and they were doing their sacrificing people deep in these caves, hoping that they could correct the mistakes of their fathers, but they, they couldn't, and it was too late. And that's, and that's where they were in a state of imbalance, where they were doing these sacrifices in, in, a, in a type of what I think in new school religion would be called penance. They were trying to do a penance by sacrificing children or people. A lot of hearts, a lot of heart issues with the minds, a lot of digging out of hearts. Um, but they were trying to do those sacrifices in terms of back to the Mother Earth as like, here's our offering for the damage that we've done. Is that it? Yeah, I mean, the priests were taking on the characteristics and understandings of, of 
people before the technology and but mm-hmm. they were the only ones to to practice it so everyone sort of forgot that they could practice these things because they were too busy you know chopping wood and and carrying water or, or you know growing <laughs> yeah, corn yeah 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 it's like so they just have to realize they once they realized that they could they were sort of a part of it all not the one percent then you know it, it sort of changed and uh if that makes sense mm-hmm. and so we gave away our power they gave away their power as individuals to benefit the earth by listening to the priests who are saying, no, if we kill more people, it'll all be fine. That seems crude, but that's kind of it, isn't it? Yeah, the priests work in conjunction with the rulers, and the rulers um, legitimize their bloodlines um, through through the religion. And, um, and they probably knew that at some point that it wasn't working, but they were too proud to say anything because they re- they you know, they don't want to get overthrown. Yeah. <laughs> sound familiar? And possibly killed. <laughs> and possibly killed. Yeah, it sounds that. Uh, wow. I can't imagine that happening. Um, and and they, and had they had a cycle of doing this before? I don't know, it's in their, in their history in these, in these carvings and the history of the Mayans or the Maya culture, had they had a history of getting this to this extreme level before in possibly a different way? Or is this a completely, when this blood sacrifice became a thing and seemed to last for quite some time, had that been prior in history where it had been in their history? Or was that, it, it happened and then eventually it stopped? And why did it stop? That's a big question. Yeah, it's a big question, but... It... The further you go back to the earliest recorded uh, Maya history with the with their calendar, somewhere around 300 BC or so, um, the further you realize that it was more of an Olmec culture, um, which is the 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 people with the big heads you might see on like ancient aliens or something. They're these gigantic mm-hmm. African heads, and um, there's not really any archaeological evidence to support that they were doing these type of sacrifices back then. Um, there's more likely archaeological evidence to, to indicate that there was migrations from other continents um, with people doing these things, i.e. the Egyptians or African or people from Stonehenge or, or the Phoenicians, um, which, you know, in the Bible you'll look back and Abraham and all this. But so you'll see that you'll see that, they in the Pulpu Vu, this creation story in this book that they found in Chichi Castanango in Guatemala, so by Lake Atilan, you'll find um, correlations to Catholicism. Um, but it's hard to say what came first because this was a written down thing um, in this book, and it was written down through, or it was recorded in oral history, and then someone wrote it down while they were being subjugated. By the priests in the in the um it, you know be after after all this happened so basically the only way to figure out any of that is to um uh the burning of the codexes when the catholics showed up it already happened or they they might find something they might dig deeper under a pyramid with more funding mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and so the cultures of priests 
Hamas would come over and want to destroy the documentation, so to speak, because it was like, no, we don't want anybody to know that happened. Right. Well, the the Catholics and the the monks and the the friars like Diego Landa and the, and uh, Mani Yucatan, it's on the it's on the um, Gulf side, so it'd be like just you know right off the boat from Spain into into Central America. Um, when he found in the 1500s, he he found all these these horrible rituals going on, all this bloodletting and all this sacrifice and all this, you know, stuff that he just had to burn everything, right? Because it was evil, it was Satan, it was the devil. And what he did was he burned a history of of our past, um, our meaning the human species, um, because they had it recorded. And, and much of it, I believe, was like the Library of Alexandria in Egypt. You'll have this... Um, sort of mystery school um, uh, history where you go back to the priests of Egypt and further. Mm-hmm. And so they were trying to destroy the idea or cover it up. Do you think that was partially because they were trying to cover up an idea that they felt was wrong and horrible or they might want to use it later themselves? So therefore they didn't. Oftentimes my looks at history, I find that they find information and then they destroy that information because they don't want anybody else to know that information. So if they come up with an idea, they can go, wait, this is my idea. They've never done this before in the thousand years that we've been here. It just seems oftentimes they come in and want to, and or it's a kind of a religious purge. Uh, And the idea that they want to cover up, they want to like, oh, these people were savages. We'll destroy all of this because they were such savages. Is there, I can't yeah, reform that into a question. It. Yeah, it's all you know, of no, it. Right? Yeah. It's, all, it's, all, it's all of it because if you think, you know, I mean, just look at war and look at, uh, you know, Biden and the PACT Act. The PACT was the thing that was like, okay, we made a mistake by burning all these things um, and people ingesting the smoke and, you know, after war. And so what do they do with bodies? They dig a big-ass trench and they they toss the bodies in or, or burn them or whatever. Mm-hmm. But you want to, if you're a leader and you're colonizing something and you got children and, and women and, and people who believe in just things, you want to mm-hmm. cover your tracks. So you're going to destroy the history because they don't want to paint themselves in a bad light. So they get overthrown quickly. That's one. Mm-hmm. The other piece mm-hmm. is that, yes, there's probably information that they already knew about. Um, and you could be paranoid about it and say, well, the Vatican has a pineal gland on, in their symbolism in, in the courtyard. And, you know, it looks right. like in around meditation or some mystic art or something. And they obviously, they're, you know, was around 300 B.C., this stuff from uh, Julius Caesar burned the, the um, Library of Alexandria. And, you know, that wasn't the 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 information from that could have transferred over the course of a, a hundred or two hundred years orally or written down through the Knights Templar. It, I mean, there's all these things, right? So there is information. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think you're right on all accounts. 
There's a, a woman, Jill Matson, who's written a bunch of books. She's a very prolific writer, and her background is she's a musician. She started playing the violin when she was five, and she does amazing uh, talks talking about the history of how music and sound was changed. And at one point when the church came in, I don't remember what time. She's got the whole timeline down pat, but I don't remember that part. I just remember there was some point at which the churches started taking notes out of music because that, that notes in that music, possibly in harmony with each other, would have people more leaning toward freedom of expression or something. And the church was like, get rid of all those B flats. I'm totally making that up. But some kind of thing where they literally wanted to control what people were hearing in music. And so it goes to the same thing of, you know, Julius Caesar destroying the libraries of, you know, Alexandria, because that might threaten my ruling. And I hate that. There's a much better yep. way to say that. But that really is kind of the bottom line. It just seems that somebody comes into power and goes, this is bad because they might think I could do this. So let's burn those books and I'll just keep that in my mind. It's amazing. And I, I didn't know that the Mayans, you know, had had so much of that in their history as well. But I guess all history is dissimilar, not dissimilar, in that we do bad things, we'd like to cover it up. Like I say, they dig trenches and they burn bodies or they bury them. Um, I don't know. Is there a part of the, oh, I didn't realize we were that close to the, we're getting close to the end, that mm-hmm. do the Mayans have a, a, and again, in their cosmovision, do they lean toward having a better relationship to nature? At some point, they wake up and they realize burning the trees down are bad, and so they go into the caves and they do the sacrifices. But do they? Is there a side of them that is more in relationship to nature? Something that we can also lean toward? Yeah, like I was saying at the beginning, there was, and then the then the sort of rulers and the vassal lords from other locations like uh, Teotihuacan in Mexico City, they mm-hmm. they came and sort of flipped the script. But um, and then towards the end, they realized well it just wasn't working anyway, and the the cities were abandoned. They say where did they all go? Well, a lot of them went to the jungle, and if you go to uh, where I'm going next month, uh, the Lacandone Forest, people were wearing white tunics in the 1950s um, made from root bark. <laughs> or root, mm-hmm. root bark. You yeah. know, so they they went back to the land <laughs> like the hippies in, in California, yeah. right? Yeah. So it's, it's like that was something that they did because um, they don't need the, all this stuff anymore. And so the meek shall inherit the earth and, and that's kind of what their message is now. Like if you go to the places like Lake Atitlan in Guatemala is that everyone's really close to the earth and they're sort of practicing the old ways again, despite the mm-hmm. tourism and the development. Mm-hmm. It's an amazing thing when you're, you know, in relationship with the earth. I, I have to use my 106 year old grandmother as an example. Um, she died in the seventies and she came across America in a wagon not as a travel choice, but because what she was old enough, that's how she got to Utah. And I, one of the reasons that she lived to be 106 is because, in my mind, is because they unintentionally ate organic. They grew their own food. They had their own cattle. They had a farm. And they would, she would go out and pick food and cook it. And they were 
part of what I'm always leaning toward in the Mayan culture also is the if we actually have a relationship with the earth and we work with the earth and don't ongoingly destroy and poison her, kind of like what I think we do now, it seems like you can be, you can be making clothing out of root fiber. You can actually be, earth wants to work with us. I guess that's what I'm leaning toward is earth does want to work with us. If we are willing to work with her, is that a reflection? Go ahead. Oh, well, and, and so that's the thing is like it's not too late. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm not sure. <laughs> we don't have to argue about this now. I I like the theory of what you what you think. It's just that we seem so aggressively, just aggressively damaging the earth as much as we can. I'll talk about glyphosate. Uh, Roundup, the toxic weed killer that, you know, currently Mexico is saying we don't want any more American corn shipped to Mexico because it's all GMO, which means if it's GMO, it's been sprayed probably with Roundup or glyphosate, which has long-term bad effects for people, for the microbiome of the soil, all that. Whereas in America, the EPA just put off until 2014 making any ruling about glyphosate. You know, and so we're just, we're aggressively doing things to the earth that are bad and they begin to bite us in the butt in our health. That's why this is what I talk about a lot is the relationship between the environment and our health because we are putting toxins into the soil that are affecting the children being born today. Not in a good way, not in a beneficial way. Whereas if you're like my grandmother and you go back to the earth, kind of like you would say with the hippies, you go back to the earth and you're making clothing out of the fibers from the plants and you're eating the food and maybe occasionally you kill a forest creature, but you're actually in relationship. You're not just aggressively like, dun, 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 we're coming through, we're taking everything and leaving it destroyed. Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. There was more there, I thought. Oh, no, I was just, I was just laughing at your, your sound effects. I like them. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it really does seem, you know, that I, I'm, I'm always happy to talk to someone such as yourself who's spent a lot of time looking at history and looking at Mayan cult- a culture such as the Mayans coming away with the, no, we can still do this. I'll have what you're having. I, I'm not sure well, yet. Yeah, if we're conscious, if we have consciousness unlike other animals in a, in a different capacity, then certainly we can be optimistic for a brighter future. Mm-hmm. All right. <laughs> I'm on your team. I'll be with on your team. But I'm still a little like, I don't know. We're making a mess of things. We seem to be aggressively making a mess of things. And yet, I know amazing projects. You know, people building hempcrete homes, doing great things. Um regenerative farming probably in the ancient days was just called farming. Uh, there are really wonderful things happening out there and you're one of these people that are out there journeying finding it so that part's very cool and dealing with ancient cultures um we're at a point where i have to ask you or would like to ask you where would you like people to find out more about your work your journeys and what is your next book that we get to look forward to reading are you working on it yeah, now? Um, I suspect you are. Yeah, so my website's elicoverly.com. I'm on Instagram as Eli Coverly. Um, and you can find my book on Amazon, War in the Hearts of Men. Uh, and 
so my next book after War on the Hearts of Men is is a, a dystopian thriller, and so it's oh. about it's called Artificial Antiquity. It's about um, the not too far off future where we um, decided to go with the world that's ruled by AI, but indigenous prophecy um, sort of sort of contrary. Huh. And and so um, there's a you know there's a main character. It's, it's essentially an action western, but it's it's uh, has a lot of technology and, and ancient uh, prophecy. Cool. So it's more. So it's a. So you have a win-win. You go out and you travel the world, finding these amazing stories, and then you write a book about it in a certain way. Is that is that your inspiration for the when you go to like back to Palenque or someplace? Do you further by being in that area get a insp- inspired by that, and therefore you are propelled to write another book? Yeah, not only that, but the Cosmovision is furthered, um, and my theories and ideas about what I've learned about is furthered by going back and studying the history again. Um, and it, 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 just in case you didn't get it the first two times, there's a third book that's a fiction story where it's more entertaining. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, I understand. <laughs> no, no, I'm not opposed to history, but I am you know, lean toward entertainment. Um, that's really great, Eli. I knew this is going to be fascinating because there's so much there and there are parts of the culture that I have a lot of respect for and other parts would like, could you stop with the bleeding and bloodletting and heart carving? They always seem very aggressive about that. <laughs> so it was gnarly. All right. Thank you, Eli. And everybody else have a great rest of the weekend and we'll see you next week. Bye-bye. <laughs>